You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. Well, welcome to Sydney Ideas, and uh, tonight we're going to be discussing culture, trust and systems. Little reminder about phones, <laughs> very timely. <laughs> um, to introduce myself, my name is Alana Mann and I'm the Chair of the Department of Media and Communications at the University of Sydney. Looking forward to teaching first year journalism next week. And um, while I'm not doing my day job, I'm researching at the Sydney Environment Institute, which is a wonderful place to be. And I would like to thank Sydney Environment Institute and Sydney Ideas for hosting tonight's event. Before we begin proceedings, are the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. And tonight, as we share our knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices within the university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever in Aboriginal custodianship of country. So we have three speakers this evening, just to introduce the format first of all. You'll see that we've got three chairs at the front of the room. Each of our speakers is going to deliver a talk on their topic for 10 minutes. After that time, I'll ask them to join us again in front of the audience and we will have a question and answer session for approximately 25 minutes. And we're hoping to finish by approximately 7.30. So thank you for um, attending tonight, because our audience is a very important part of these events. So just to give a brief overview of the topic and also to introduce our speakers. We're talking tonight about local and democratic politics for the Anthropocene. So what exactly does that mean? Really what we're going to do is have a conversation that examines a variety of ways of rethinking local politics for a more sustainable and democratic world. So the idea of ecological democracy is a promising one, but what exactly does it mean? What are some of the normative values? We've got environmental concern and engagement on one hand, and democratic legitimacy and procedure on the other. And this really rings true for me today because I gave a debate um, speech this morning to the undergraduates at their welcome, and our topic was what is truth? And it's interesting how often uh, all of the speakers brought their arguments back to this issue of democracy and legitimacy and voice and participation in all of the issues that affect us. So this is a really important um, topic, certainly, when we're talking about the environment. So this relationship between democracy and sustainability is something we're going to delve into tonight. So what we want to do is what we always do at Sydney Ideas is, and Sydney Environment Institute is put innovative thinkers in, and actors into conversation to examine these topics. So we really want your questions uh, at the end to help take us on that journey too. So our first speaker tonight is Dr. Marit Hammond from Keele University. Marit is a lecturer in environmental politics at Keele University in the UK and co-investigator of the Economic Research, uh, Research Council Centre for Understanding of Sustainable Prosperity or CUSP. Her research interests include environmental political theory, sustainability governance and democratic theory, particularly deliberative democracy. Her forthcoming work is co-authored and it's entitled Power in Deliberative Democracy, Norms, Forums and Systems. Our second speaker tonight will be well known to many of you here. 
Professor David Schlossberg is the Director of the Sydney Environment Institute and he is a Professor of Environmental Politics in the Department of Government and International Relations here at Sydney. His work focuses on contemporary environmental and environmental justice movements, environment and everyday life and climate adaptation, planning and policy. And his latest book, Sustainable Materialism, Environmental Movements and the Politics of Everyday Life, will be published by Oxford this year. And our third and final speaker tonight is Professor Lisa Dish. Uh, Lisa is Professor of Political Science and Women's Studies at the University of Michigan, where she teaches a large introductory course on political ideas and ideologies, as well as upper division courses on population and the environment, contemporary political theory, political representation, and Anglo-American and French feminism, among other things. And she is finishing a book-length monograph on political representation for the University of Chicago Press. So it's going to be a great night. Um, I would like to also thank, of course, the people who make all of this happen, including Deputy Director Michelle St. Anne of the Sydney Environment Institute and the lovely Eloise Fetterplace who met you at the door. Oh, sorry, and she's just popped down here. She's shape-shifting again. <laughs> well... Before we uh, continue, I'd like to put you to put your hands together and uh, welcome Dr. Marit Hammond to the stage. Thank you very much and thank you, David, for having me um, and Alana. Um, and thank you all for coming. So as Alana said, I'm a political theorist. And so in this talk that, um, so this paper that my talk tonight is based on, I reflect in quite broad conceptual terms on what sustainability ought to be understood to mean, and then I'm going to reflect on the broad societal foundations that are required for that, and I'm going to conclude or make a case for democracy being a necessary condition for sustainability and reflect on the role of the arts in enabling the kind of reflexivity that I'm going to argue um, uh, is necessary for sustainability. Um, as well. And the talk is based on a recent book chapter in this book um, with a co-author, co um, but going a bit beyond that um, as well. And my starting point is to suggest that in the Anthropocene, we need to rethink sustainability in these ways. So the Anthropocene is the new geological epoch that is proposed uh, to be named in order to, to acknowledge humanity being the driving force behind geoecological geo change at the planetary scale. And it means that ecosystems must be recognized as no longer being something external that can be managed and controlled for human interests, but rather human activity and social systems interconnect with ecological change in much more complex ways and in much more dynamic and unpredictable ways. And so that means that sustainability as a goal in the Anthropocene also becomes a much more complex project than perhaps previous um, characterizations or the way it is being portrayed in the public discourse. So rather than just staying within ecological limits by encouraging green lifestyles or ecological behavior, or perhaps thinking of specific solutions to environmental problems that can be overcome, sustainability must be seen as a continuous process of assessing, reflecting on, and responding to dynamic ecosystem change. Um, on an ongoing basis. And for that, I argue democracy and the kind of reflexivity that the realm of, of art embodies are vital. 
so sustainability is seen as the solution to the environmental crises. Um, and the dominant interpretation is the, is the Brundtland definition of sustainable development that is seen as this balance between economic, social and environmental goals and is typically operationalized through indicator lists like this one, which contains the kinds of things that matter to societies, to modern liberal democracies um, in their current frameworks. But it's shaped really by political expedience as a political compromise between different interests. And so... In this paper, I argue if we take seriously the underlying ecology and sociology that drives human flourishing and social ecological systems, we arrive at a different kind of conception of sustainability. So from an ecological perspective, the, this kind of indicator list containing sustainability is too simplistic in the sense that it gives this impression of a managerial problem, of a tick list that can be achieved and then sustainability has been accomplished. When in reality, ecologically speaking, what makes the environmental challenges that we're facing at the moment so complex is that they are interlinked in, in ways that are still insufficiently understood. So ecological change in one, one planet, even, uh, one um, uh, in one particular area can cause effects in a different one um, that in a way that we haven't understood very much about yet. Um, and on the other hand, ecosystems develop in non-linear, chaotic ways rather than sort of continuous gradual behavior that can be predicted and managed through policy interventions, ecosystems move in non-linear ways between different stable states and where critical thresholds or tipping points are reached, they can tip the whole ecosystems into a different basin of attraction, including one that might no longer support human civilization as we know it. And in light of these patterns, ecologists advocate resilience as the goal of human interactions with the ecosystem rather than the sort of management or containing of, of environmental problems. And resilience is defined as the capacity of a system to absorb disturbance and reorganize while undergoing change so as to still retain essentially the same function, structure, identity and feedbacks. So it really is based on the notion that transformation and variability are vital to long-term sustainability rather than containing things in one particular um, state. So because ecological processes are naturally dynamic rather than static, sustainability is better conceived of as a continuous process of change, um, rather than as something that where we need to control environmental problems. So the more we try to control and manage, the greater actually the risk of these abrupt and potentially catastrophic state shifts. So the implication is that sustainability requires open-endedness rather than control. If it means to respond to phenomena as fundamentally unpredictable as ecological change, it means to, to um, embrace openness in the sense of being able to deliberately transform the society, embarking on a different direction if that becomes necessary. Then sociologically speaking, um, there has been some discussion to, to what extent the concept of resilience can be applied to social systems as well, but I argue based on Hannah Arendt's concept of action, what she calls action in society, similar conclusions can be drawn in the sense that, in the same way that there is um, an ecological function or identity that where an abrupt change must be um, prevented, also sociologically speaking, there is a social core in society that isn't a fixed core, it's not a fixed set of values that must be retained, but also a, a, a dynamic 
web of relationships, as Arendt calls it, that is fragile, but that develops dynamically, which means that radical changes in society um, can potentially, but do not necessarily, lead to a rupture of this sense of legitimacy and identity that holds the society together and allows flourishing and prosperity. And action, what Arendt calls action, are the kinds of interventions in the public sphere that keep this web of relationships um, alive and dynamic. And she says, it unleashes boundless processes and chain reactions that create new beginnings, continually reinventing the society. So these kinds of new beginnings and reinventions are precisely then what's necessary to retain this openness, this open-endedness in the way the society develops over time and can then respond to, to unpredictable um, sorts of changes. So from that perspective, we could conclude that you also need that kind of social resilience that um, allows for radical change to happen but without rupturing this fragile web of relationships that is at the core of uh, at the core of the society. And Arendt warns that the use of violence and force destroys this productive rather than destructive power. And so the public sphere that again harbors diversity, plurality, that's the, uh, uh, um, the, re the necessary foundation for um, open-endedness at the same time as a sense of legitimacy that continues over time. So from that perspective, at the level of these fundamental patterns by which the society develops, over time. Sustainability can be seen at this balance, at this fragile intersection between a radical open-endedness towards new kinds of features, new ways of rethinking the society, but while at the same time taking the society along with it sufficiently uh, to retain um, legitimacy. And at this balance, we can see that democracy is necessary for sustainability. So we couldn't say we can't afford democracy, we can't afford the luxury of democracy anymore with how urgent the crisis is. But democracy becomes a necessary foundation for sustainability from, from this perspective. Because to be able to reinvent itself deliberately, the society must be reflective in the sense of learning from the past, retaining this openness to alternative pathways, and inducing deliberate conscientious change towards radically, radically new futures. But what hinders that kind of open reflexivity are structures of domination through which the dominant ideology sets limits on what is even sayable, thinkable, or imaginable in the current society. And so for critical theorists, these structures of domination that perpetuate a given order are not just in the form of direct, tangible forms of oppression or power, but they permeate people's very thinking. And the only thing that overcomes those kinds of limits on what, what is even thinkable is the practice of critique that uncovers and challenges these um, and, um, and then sets in motion self-reflective learning processes that can transform so social practices. So inasmuch as these taken-for-granted familiar ways of thinking can impose a grip on people's thinking and hence on the society's ability to think up new futures, um, to that extent, critical dislocations are needed that, that help see reality in a, in a completely different light. And those critical political engagements presuppose democracy, of course, as a necessary socio-political foundation for that kind of inclusivity that allows every potentially different new voice, new perspective into the public discussion and translates that into tangible political outcomes. Um, 
So from that perspective, it's not just that democracy as we know it, liberal democracy is a, is a necessary condition for sustainability, but the more democratic a society, the more sustainable it is as well in the sense as the more open to, to radical changes like that or to, to different visions of the future. And so with, even within existing liberal democracies, um, there's uh, the space and the need to democratize further in order to have this vibrant public discussion that Arendt uh, imagines. And this, um, uh, for this, I argue the arts can play an important role um, in enabling that, because at least in their idealized abstract form, the arts denote the public realm par excellence that pushes against the boundaries of the present, as well as being creatively forward-looking. So a sphere that is creative and imaginative. Conceptually, because of its autonomy from society, it marks an important reservoir of freedom that is, that is distinct from the rest of the public discussion. And unlike other realms in society does not conform to the external forces of influence that threaten this critical reflectiveness in other areas. So as a result, the arts can play the role of, of an avant-garde and transform social practices in precisely this way um, that I have suggested. Um, so insofar as these certain forms of, of exclusion or oppression operate at our level of thinking, of perception, the art is what is displayed or takes place in the field of perception and hence provides a, a new foundation for change at that, um, at that fundamental level. But of course, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm willing to engage in the conversation as to what the limitations to those sorts of processes are themselves. Um, and I've got a couple of examples of um, art projects that make, make us see things in different ways, such as the, um, this project, Weedy Resistance by Ellie Irons, which... Um, um, artistically portrays the role of plants in cities that are otherwise only portrayed as weeds and tries to make us rethink human nature relationships in those kinds of ways. Um, so I'm very inspired by the kinds of projects that the Sydney Environment Institute um, undertakes. But from this perspective, I suppose the message I want to make uh, is to say that it's not just about translating research into um, kind of communicating research findings, but there's something in the realm of the arts that we can take on board um, that can inform sustainability as well. But I'm going to end here. Thank you very much. Thank you, Alana. Thank you, Merit. Um, I missed that. I think that's good. I missed that. So um, we wanted Merit to go first to give that sort of um, that overview and that discussion about the relationship between sustainability and democracy. What I want to do is talk a little bit more specifically about social movements and social action that may or may not be informed by art, which is a good question. Um, so this comes from some of the work that I've done recently on social movements around food systems, energy systems, and sustainable fashion. And the main point of that work has really been on the political motivations of those kinds of organizations and actors, and it comes out of a set of interviews, 100 interviews with activists in three different countries. But the focus of this action, the focus of the activity is on everyday life. The focus is on the flow of materials um, through people's bodies, through their communities, through their everyday life. The focus is on, uh, on systems and on material action, and that kind of material action around food or energy or clothing uh, as a form of political action. And so that's um, what I mean when I talk about material participation. 
And I'll come back to that. I just want to make three points in 10 to 12 minutes and see if I can do that. So the first thing I want to do is talk about a form of material uh, participation as uh, political participation in these movements. I'll differentiate that a little bit because there's a lot of discussion in the academic realm anyway about different kinds of material participation, uh, participation of the non-human, participation of things, for example, um, but I want to talk specifically about human participation. The second thing I want to do is talk about the relationship between that kind of material participation, that kind of material action, uh, and sustainability. Uh, and not just sustainability as an idea, but exactly the same sort of idea, the sort of engagement of systems of non-human and human relationships. Um, and so material participation in that sense is really about uh, sustainability in practice. And the third thing I want to do, and this is the more um, sort of academic arguing against other academics part of the talk, um, is to argue against some academics who say, basically, that's all crap and that's not really politics. Uh, and so I want to defend, as Lisa has done, um, why this kind of material action is actually a valid form uh, of politics. So the first point, what um, do I mean by material participation in food systems and energy systems uh, in sustainable fashion movements? So we usually understand political participation as a very instrumental action, right? You protest to get a message across, you lobby to change public policy, you vote for an outcome, a person or a policy. But what we, what we found in the interviews is an understanding of politics, of justice, of sustainability that is really about the material. It's about the everyday uh, and about participating in that sort of embodied change in everyday life. So these movements are really about changing the flow uh, of materials like food or energy or clothing through their bodies and communities and changing uh, systems that create uh, and pass those objects through everyday life. But it's about political participation for these actors. It's about procedural justice. It's about action for sustainability. Right? People always talk about the importance of increasing community involvement uh, in everyday life, in the production of food, in the production of energy, in the flow uh, of energy or fashion. Um, so in Australia, for example, for food activists, there's always a critique of the duopoly, right, of the, the, the two supermarket chains, and an insistence on creating an alternative, on being able to create a food system where people can step out of that duopoly uh, and act in a different way, right, and act in a way to bring food systems back to the community level. So it really gets to the core of the materialist aspect of this politics, right? So participation isn't just about being consulted, it's not just about voting, it's not just about policy, it's about doing, right? And literally for food movements, it's about people getting their hands dirty. People talked about do activism, and I've got it, there's something here about do activism versus the duopoly um, that works really well. So, like I said, there's a lot of work in this realm on material participation, um, but it mainly focuses on the non-human, not that there's anything wrong with that. Um, uh, Norcha Morris, for example, focuses on smart devices or um, various objects. Jane Bennett talks about the vitality of things and thing power. Kay Hawkins, who's here, also talks about uh, material action, material things, objects uh, around waste, for example. And this kind of work really helps to legitimize the study of the material realm as a valid focus for the politics of participation, and so I really appreciate that. Um, and Lisa, in her great, here's a plug, Lisa in her great essay on representation in the Oxford Handbook of Environmental Political Theory, um, which will be out in paperback next month, because um, <laughs> it's just insanely priced otherwise. Um, 
She talks about, yeah, sorry, book plugs, um, argues that we should be critical of a tech-centric idea of material participation is, is um, critical of uh, Mars' work in particular um, uh, because it misses the crucial role of political motivation, uh, of action, uh, and of organizing. And we make the same kind uh, of argument in this book about sustainable materialism, that this kind of material participation is not just about things or non-human nature or technology, it really is about political power and participation in the human realm uh, as well. So my thinking about material participation is a bit different from, it's a bit complementary to, I think, some of this other work. So rather than this deep dive uh, into objects, I'm really interested in the way that activists articulate their own material political action, um, and then the way that that's really become a part of their understanding of procedural justice and sustainability. And so the focus of the movements, again, is on this material action around food, around energy, around clothing, and there's this recognition of the vitality of the non-human, but also this focus on what it is that humans do in the creation of the systems and the flows of those materials that is important, not just in terms of human justice, but in terms of the relationship with the non-human uh, as well. So producing and buying food or um, creating a local sustainable food system is a political, attack, a, a political act that is attentive to soil, it's attentive to sustainability. It's attentive to things like food justice. Right? Building a community power grid, for example, having that power flow through one's home, a different kind of power flow through one's home, that's, again, another political act that's attentive both to the power of the extractive industries and utilities on the one hand, but also um, to the power uh, and, uh, or the impacts of climate change. And so there is both this political statement and sustainability statement at the same time. Um, and then attention, of course, to every point in the supply chain when it comes to making or buying a pair of jeans, again, as a political act, attentive to the impacts of fast fashion uh, environments, livelihoods, waste streams, and all that. And so that brings me you know, to the second point, which is really it's not just about material participation, it's about material participation with sustainability uh, at its heart. Uh, and clearly this kind of political action at the local level um, is based in these understandings of the relationships between our material lives and the sustainability uh, of non-human nature. And the, the, this kind of attention, I think, to material flows through communities is, is not new when it comes to political action. The environmental justice movement has long been about this attention to things like um, pollutants and lead that flows literally through the blood and body uh, of people and women into their children and all of that. And so there is, there has been that attention to material flows. This isn't a new thing in these uh, movements that I'm looking at. Um, but we are seeing this growth of attention to material flows um, of food and energy. And, and of course, environmental justice is turning into things like food justice and energy justice uh, and all of that. But one of the things that we found around this idea of sustainability and this movement is a, a, a real focus on reconnecting to the non-human, this idea of connection, uh, of making, of creating or awakening or seeing again this relationship that we've been blind to for so long. And then again, a focus on systems and flows and the sort of continuity, that openness that, um, that Merritt talked about. So the interviewees, people we talk to, um, they commonly talk about the sense of disconnection, about environmental alienation as one of the motivations for their interest in creating local uh, food systems. 
So reconnecting people to the natural world is a key focus. One energy activist talks about the way that modern life has gone. Lots of people have lost touch with nature. They don't understand that they're part of nature. Nature is part of them. A food justice activist states that, quote, we have a perilous separation right now, not knowing where our food comes from before it ends up on our table, or how people are treated through that food, or where does waste go at the end of the meal. So there's an idea of sustainability, but you get that sense of system, paying attention to each step uh, along the way. Another activist asked, how do we take this opportunity, this perhaps dire moment, but this incredible opportunity, and help organize to create something that works better for ourselves and other species? So thinking about participation in these material systems, thinking farm to table or field to hangar or sonder wind to appliance, that's central to the activists uh, in these movements. And that's where this idea of material participation, I think, really meets to form a meets to create a form of local ecological democracy. And I think it's really heartening to see this increase uh, of such action. I don't know what just happened there. Um, not only in movements, but in local governments as well. And so one of the examples that we use here a lot is the city of Sydney. Um, when I got here a few years ago, the city of Sydney, the, the idea of food in the city of Sydney, food was a hobby, right? It's the, how to take classes, you took classes and how to grow food on your tiny balcony or in worm farming or something like that, right? But food for the city has changed the idea of food and thinking about food systems and thinking about new food practices as a way, should I just, as a way to rethink things like food insecurity and sustainability and resilience and social justice. So it's really become a much more integrated idea. Um, I'm getting the sinking feeling that we haven't been recording this whole thing. Um, but that's... <laughs> So um, this sort of idea focusing on system, that's been a growing idea, not just in here, obviously, there's a lot of this happening around, just around food. In Victoria, Tasmania um, is pretty amazing uh, as well. And then just look at the rapid expansion of community energy projects, the sheer number of community energy projects growing. Again, moving from this sort of individualized thing, just putting panels on your roof, to talking about networks and microgrids and collective local action. That's the sort of collective material action. And then the last point is this, this question of whether or not this is political or political enough, right? So, um, and this is the frustrating part is the academic, right? The activists get it, communities get it. This is happening in a lot of communities. All, uh, there's so many examples uh, of this and I'm really a cynical person and this actually gives me some sort of, um, hope is too strong a word, encouragement maybe. Um, and yet we get academics who say that this isn't politics, right? And so there's this whole post-political crowd um, that does uh, a criticism, not just of um, this kind of work, but of new materialism uh, in general. And I think, I mean, the criticism for me is these folks just have a very uh, naive and narrow understanding of what politics is. So, for example, one criticism of the new materialism, of Jane Bennett's uh, ideas of uh, uh, political vitalism in particular, is this sort of um, dismissal of the idea that if you think more material, that you'll actually change things, right? The criticism is that, um, that that kind of action can't address systematically reproduced constraints, can't deal with the power of the systems that they're fighting. And so they run the risk of encouraging or creating a politics that in the end won't really matter. 
And then Engelford Bluthorn, who is um, uh, at the University of Vienna, he responded to my original article with Rom Coles with this um, criticism that um, all of this is just another kind of politics of sustainability. And all these movements are really doing is coping with their own values. Right, they're just, it's a coping mechanism, not uh, a way to counter unsustainable practices in the large run. So for both of those kinds of critics, material concerns and material action are a retreat from what they think is real politics. But the problem is, is that their notion of politics, again, is just really narrow and thin. So Bluthorn and Eric Swingedow and others, um, I mean, for them, politics is basically, unless you're out protesting in the streets about, you know, about capital all the time, you're not being political. And I'm not, I mean, I'm not dismissing that. That's not an unimportant thing. It's a, really, it's a crucial part of politics, but it's a part of politics. Um, and to call these kinds of actions apolitical or non-political or anti-sustainable, uh, I think is just really, uh, uh, it shows a very limited notion uh, of politics. And, and the other thing it shows is that they're just not paying attention to what people are saying and doing, right? So material participation for the activists that we talk to is about impactful politics. So one activist says, this project has allowed me to be able to talk about so many things that I find fascinating and big, complex, global questions, but through a path of solution. And that, to me, is what's really huge. I'm not interested in policy think tanks. I want action. Another activist says, quote, um, this participation is a political strategy. I don't really care about going off the grid. I want us to take over the grid. And we're not going to do that if everyone is just looking at energy as this very individualized consumer thing. This is a community system, right? That's a radical uh, idea. And finally, one of my favorite quotes from these 100 interviews, um, and the most fitting is, more people understand the fact that we fucked up the planet, basically. And we just need to do stuff on the ground, and that's where it needs to start from. So the critiques of this political, of, of the political implications of material participation just miss the broad and radical motivations and potential of a number of these movements. So if there's one sort of final point I want to get across out of this discussion is that, that, is that these movements that are concerned with the flows of materials through everyday life um, represent an important, realizable, and growing form of participatory and sustainable uh, material and political action, right? So three points. It's about materially fo focused action as a form uh, of political participation. It's about material participation as a form of sustainability. And it's about material participation as a deliberate and effective political act and strategy. Thanks. So what could be more political than changing the way people act and who they link up with and speak to. I don't understand. So uh, the project I want to talk to you about is called Public Trust Populism. And the idea for this form of action got started at a meeting in a coffee shop uh, between me and my colleague and friend, Andy Buxbaum. Now, Andy is vice president for uh, an organization within another organiza organization called One Federation. It sounds like 
Star Trek, but it's not. Uh, that is a probably reference that goes over most of your heads. Uh, but one federation is a newly invented part of the National Wildlife Federation, which is a U.S. civil society association that has been involved in conservation and preservation for many years. Um, and one federation is an explicitly political arm of the National Wildlife Federation. And I'll talk a little bit more in a moment about what I mean by that. So Andy asked me to think with him about, about the possibility of organizing opposition to something called captive hunting. So captive hunting involves private landowners creating game reserves, fencing them in with very high fences, stocking them with deer, elk, other animals of that sort, and sometimes with animals, exotic animals that the zoos don't want anymore. And so uh, what you do in a captive hunt is you charge the patrons a pretty high fee, depending on the animal. Now, for a deer, it's like 400 American dollars. But if you want to hunt a tiger, it could be in the thousands. And they pay the fee, and they get a guaranteed kill of that animal who is penned in. They're usually pretty large game reserves, but still, the point is that you're shooting fish in a barrel. So Andy was drawn to this issue, um, not primarily because he thought that states should be stopped from granting permits to these facilities, although they should be, but also because he thought it would help him make a start at doing his job. And to, uh, his job is to bring together the affiliates, the member uh, organizations of the National Wildlife Federation together in coordinated action. And I want to make sure that you understand that that is a hard job. The National Wildlife Federation takes its identity as a federation seriously, which means that its member organizations are diverse. They have different interests and different priorities. So it is composed of organizations whose primary concern is with preserving habitat for hunting and fishing, uh, it is also composed of organizations that actually don't like hunters very much and that care about animal rights and conservation as an end in itself. So these numerous member organizations differ wildly on what they value. Um, and what Andy wants to do is to find issues that are ripe for the possibility of the kinds of cross partisan, cross-ideological coalitions that the U.S. political parties are not good at doing anymore. So one of the things that has to go into a democratic politics of, of sustainability is a breaking out of the fossilized standoff that 
organized party politics gives us. We need people to make alliances with people whom they don't usually imagine as allies, and we need them to take action with people whose fundamental values they may not share. That's the trick. So um, for us, around this issue of captive hunting, if we want to build a coalition, we have to tell a new story about what captive hunting means. And that story needs to bust an old and enduring myth and tell a political story about captive hunting. So we're actually not going to tell an animal rights story. We're actually going to tell an anthropocentric story about it, what it means to humans as political actors that this practice exists and flourishes. So the myth that we need to bust is a myth about what is called the wildlife trust. The wildlife trust is one aspect of the public trust, which is a legal instrument in the United States. You do not have a public trust in Australia. Uh, and the public trust is uh, it's the fundamental notion that there are certain critical resources that the government holds in trust for the people today and the people in the future. And the government cannot sell off those resources. They cannot grant permits to use those resources in ways that deplete and damage them. So the major resources are land, water, and wildlife. And the public trust is most robust around water and least robust around wildlife, which is to say that you don't often win cases that concern wildlife, particularly when it is the state itself that is engaging in abuses of wildlife, like granting permits to captive hunting uh, facilities. So I've learned since coming here that the US public trust document doctrine is the envy of environmental lawyers in Australia. Remember, you don't have one of these in Australia. I want to burst that bubble. Don't envy us because our public trust doctrine rests on a self-defeating premise that limits its utility. And the premise that it rests on is that in order for, for the public trust to work, states have to have ownership and sovereignty over these critical resources in the first place. So in our case law around the public trust in the US, we have the notion that the public trust rests on sovereign ownership of these critical resources. Um, and the reason why this is a self-defeating premise is that essentially you give discretionary and proprietary power over these resources to the very entity that is supposed to be guarding them, to the state. And states, as you well know, are among the primary violators of the public trust when it comes to critical resources. They are happy to sell them off, lease them out, do whatever. So, the self-defeating premise at the heart of the US public trust doctrine is this idea of state ownership, and the good news is that state ownership is a myth. This myth was invented in the late 19th century by the Supreme Court Justice who wrote the landmark decision in the US establishing the public trust doctrine, specifically establishing the wildlife 
trust. This justice named Justice White told a fable about the public trust, which he said descended to the American colonies from Roman law and English law, descending in an unbroken tradition from Roman law and English law. Now this is nonsensical. Roman and English law have significantly different things to say about wildlife on precisely this question of state ownership. In Roman law, the state has a responsibility to regulate wildlife catching because wildlife is owned by no one, not because it is owned by the state. So wildlife are a critical resource that the state should protect in Roman law, not because the state owns it, but because no one can own it. Uh, by contrast, English law treated wildlife, no surprise, as the property of the king. And it was property that the king could grant to his favored nobles. So the king used the granting of game reserves to consolidate support for his uh, uh, his rule. Now, um, although these royal forest charters did carry with them the obligation to protect wildlife for the king's pleasure in hunting, this is a far cry from a public trust in wildlife. On the contrary, in England, the poor were prevented from hunting with weapons. They were even preventing from, prevented from eating game because serving quail to all of your aristocratic buddies was a mark of social status. And we don't want the poor to eat, you know, <laughs> we don't want them to eat with high society. We don't want them to eat what high society eats. Moreover, the poor were prevented from, from killing or trapping wildlife that ravaged their crops. Australians think rabbits. Uh, so even if Roman and English law could somehow add up to a tradition, which they don't, because they conflict fundamentally, um, that tradition did not flow seamlessly into the American colonies. On the contrary, we rebelled against it precisely because it was aristocratic. So the early American colonies opened wildlife hunting to everyone with a law of open capture. And this notion of open capture was a philosophy about wildlife. It was also a philosophy about democracy. It was also a philosophy about everyone except for African-Americans and Indians getting to bear arms. Yes, it is a settler colonial democracy that we are talking about here. Uh, so, um, the democracy of colonial game law in the states was distinctively American in some ways that are nothing to celebrate, but distinctively American it was. It was not a centuries-old legacy of Roman and English law, and it succeeded in managing resources for almost 200 years without asserting title to the resources it managed. So, Wildlife management went on without any claim to sovereign ownership until Justice White made that up. So we want to bust 
Justice White's myth and tell our story, which is about the relationship of the wildlife, uh, of open capture and regulation of wildlife to a distinctively American and distinctively Americanly flawed democracy, because this enables us to cast the practice of captive hunting in a light that ought to make diverse people angry. Because captive hunting is nothing short of a feudalization of American wildlife practices. It takes hunting, which we have tried to preserve as, a, as, a, a, as an activity for all Americans, regardless of their income or class status, and it turns it into a pricey, privatized, elite sport in quotes, because there's nothing sporting about hunting down a deer who's been hand-raised with an ATV. So, looked at from this perspective, captive hunting might be something that Americans across the spectrum of partisan politics could be angry about. And we want to make them angry because the Wildlife Trust needs them to be. If the Wildlife Trust is to have obligatory force, that force is not going to come from tradition, it's not going to come from foundational principles, it's going to come from political action, and it's going to come from political action across a broad base. And when you can engage political action across a broad base on one issue, you can change people's dispositions towards each other and maybe they carry that into those changed dispositions, maybe that carry that into other issues. This is our hope. So, granted, captive hunting would not make anyone's list of the most urgent problems confronting politics in the Anthropocene. But depending how you tell the story, it could be promising for making a start at the level of civil society towards breaking out of the standoff that partisan politics has us stuck in. Thank you. Now I'll invite our guests up to the stage. And just as they do come to the stage, I would like to mention that um, I think what we have to thank um, John Dreisek and um, Jonathan Pickering at the University of Canberra's Centre for Deliberative Democracy and Global Governance for the collaboration and support in organising, um, well, the visits of fabulous scholars, particularly like Marit and Lisa. So thank you all for your uh, talks. Very different, but very and, and quite sort of different ways of approaching this, this topic. Um, I have got a couple of minutes before we open to the floor. So I would like to ask a question, if I may, and I'd like to go back to Marit and just um, ask, you mentioned the example of the Urban Weeds project, which is really fascinating. Can you, can you tell us about another example of an arts project that opens up democratic possibilities in a way that reflects those, that opportunity, as you said, for art to exist at almost sort of outside the public sphere, the conventional public sphere? Yeah, it's, it's really any art project that makes people see things in a new light. That is this dislocation of 
of what so Ruth Levitas calls the defamiliarization of the familiar. And that's really vital to create these new beginnings or to make people see things in a new light. And so actually some of the projects run by the Sydney Environment Institute on climate change, for example, fall into that category because by using theater and these soundscapes, it makes people understand the reality of climate change in a way that perhaps the normal you know, science communication and the, the, the public media don't kind of reach people in that same way. But the important thing that it's not is that it's not just particular projects that are perhaps um, in an instrumental function of communicating a particular research finding or a particular message that we want to bring across, but it's, it's about the whole vibrancy and diversity of the whole realm of the arts, because mm. if it were, like the important thing that it, it's that it's not just one discourse, but that it's a constant pushing against the boundaries of what is thinkable and sayable, and so, um, I used the example of, of artist um, Ellie Iron's project about um, We the Resistance because the, the very purpose is not just to communicate a scientific finding but to make people see the reality, the see human nature relationships in a different way than they did before. So there's something that the artistic creation kind of creates, like that, that comes out of the sphere, out of the realm of the arts, to, like back to scientists as well, back to, to us scholars um, as well as the public um, and so it but kind of for, for that openness that I argued is important that reflexivity for th for that to be the outcome it needs a whole diversity and of projects and different artists kind of pushing each other um, and always kind of reinventing um, um, the, the common perception. Can I just say something there one of the so merits involved in this thing uh, I can't remember the full name, but the, the, the Sustainable Prosperity Project. And I was lucky enough to go to one of these events that they put on, and it was co-sponsored by the William Morris Society in London, right? And it just goes back to this sort of classic British arts and crafts movement, which was really about art, culture, democracy, community, the relationship between us. So there's this real nice, I mean, the, it, with this idea of sustainable prosperity, there's this real um, pull back to that arts movement. Yeah, and I mean, and that specifically deals with utopia as well, right? And so right, utopia, exactly. similarly to the arts, is used as, as a defamiliarization of the familiar. So, so a dislocation that, um, that makes people pause and see things in a different way. And so, so it can disrupt kind of how we normally think about things, even like climate change or other environmental issues. I wondered if I could ask you, because that's a fascinating... Uh, and you explained really well that uh, uh, that amazing, I guess, process or that sort of procedural law and that historic trajectory that this belief about the the idea of the ownership of these critical resources that that path's really interesting. I wondered if you had a, a, any examples of how that trust concept has been applied in relation to land. And the re the reason why I mentioned land is because we have a conversation in a lot of cities, certainly in Sydney, about the loss of peri-urban land and, and, you know, this idea of keeping land in trust for the future so that you can grow more local food, for example. Do you have any examples of that happening, either in the States or other countries? Um, I actually don't have examples of land specifically, but I, there are, you know, of course, um, in the US, there's a group called the Nature Conservancy, and that's a group that um, engages communities and private individuals to put land into trust, and often it is to bring back native species. But there's a great example of people using the concept of 
a public trust to sue governments that are just, you know, happily barreling towards environmental catastrophe. And these folks are um, calling themselves the the atmospheric trust. Their atmospheric trust litigation is what they're pursuing. And so they're thinking of the atmosphere as something that should be held in trust for future generations. And here it's really important to dislodge the sovereign ownership myth because obviously nobody owns the atmosphere. And so trust litigation cannot possibly rest on ownership in order to, uh, in, in land it really can, right? Because, yeah. right, but, but with something like the atmosphere, you cannot premise it on ownership. Thank you.